Well then, let's uh, turn with a view to God's blessing to the uh, passage that we read from Exodus and chapter 12. And after the Lord instructs Moses as to how exactly the Passover is to be kept, uh, he concludes these instructions by saying at the end of verse 11 that it is the Lord's Passover. It is the Lord's Passover. Now you remember, of course, that the, that the book of Exodus itself is, is dominated by the event that gives the book its name. That event, of course, is the exodus of the people of God out of Egypt. You'll remember, too, that that exodus is the great Old Testament picture of God's work of salvation in Christ, where he delivers his people from sin into liberty and life, out of bondage, into liberty, out of death, and into life. So it's no great surprise that God's judgment and mercy both come to the fore in the Exodus. After all, they both come to the fore in the cross. If you look at the cross of Christ, you see the judgment of God. You also see the mercy of God, both of them very starkly and very powerfully. Well, the same is true here in the Exodus. God's judgment and his mercy. Now, over the past few weeks in the mornings, we looked at God's judgment in this great event. And his judgment, you remember, was threefold. It was a judgment, first of all, upon Egypt. And then you'll remember that it was a judgment upon Egypt's gods. And then, finally, it was a judgment upon Egypt's king, or the pharaoh. And we saw how these three entities were all judged by God by means of the plagues. And now I'd like to turn with you to think more pleasantly on the mercy of God, which is, of course, shown uh, towards his own chosen people. And just as the judgments are seen in the plagues, so the mercy is seen in the Passover. Now, I think the first thing to say about uh, God's mercy here is just to emphasize something that I said a few weeks ago, and that is that God's mercy is sovereign. He is free to exercise it as he pleases. As Paul said to the Romans, uh, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he wills he hardens. And just as God is not obligated to show mercy, neither does any sinner have a right to receive it. And the two things, of course, go together, and we are liable to be mistaken with both. I mean, you're liable to think that God, because he is merciful, has to show mercy. That does not follow. And we are liable to think, too, that because we are in need of mercy, therefore we should receive it. That does not follow either. We cannot earn God's mercy. We cannot qualify ourselves for God's mercy in any way at all. As Paul said to the Romans, mercy is not of the one who wills or of the one who runs, but of God who shows it. In other words, you can't will a mercy to come from him. You can't run, you can't work in such a way as to merit it. It is simply God's prerogative to show it. Now you can kick against that if you want. I could too and say, well, he's obliged to show me mercy. He absolutely is not. God is just to leave me in my chosen sinful condition as he is just to leave you in your chosen sinful condition. And the fact of the matter is that as far as nature goes, Israel is no more deserving of God's mercy than Egypt is. 
After all, Egypt, Israel themselves had become idolaters, many of them had in Egypt. They were sunk under God's chastisement. They'd been there for nearly 400 years. There was no reason whatsoever why, humanly speaking, God should have mercy upon Israel. He could have just as easily hardened them as he hardened Egypt. But the fact is that just as God hardened Pharaoh for his own purpose, so he is showing mercy to Israel for his own purpose too. And I think before the Passover itself, before its preparation, God effectively emphasizes to Israel that they don't uh, deserve this mercy. They, They could, I suppose, have thought that the fact that they were exempt from the last four plagues meant there was something special about them. But God makes absolutely plain to them that that is not so. I mean, if you read the preamble to the Passover, you get the impression that, again, they're just going to be exempt in the same way. If you go to chapter 11 here, and at verse 4, where Moses is communicating what God has told him, Chapter 11, verse 4. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry, Throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. Against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So, as I said, they might think, well, we somehow deserve this exemption. But once God gives the instructions for the Passover, if you go down to chapter 12 and verse 13, after God tells them to kill the lamb and put the blood on the doors of the houses, in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you. To destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And there God is making plain that unless they comply with the instructions that he's giving, the same death is going to come upon themselves. And it couldn't be any clearer than that, that there is no difference between them. Clay of the same lump, except the difference that God makes between them. He provides and applies Salvation to one group in his great mercy and in his kindness. And the writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. And I'll just uh, read this for you. In chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews, he refers to the first Passover. And he says that by faith Moses kept the Passover. That means that he, he applied it, all its rules and regulations, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. No blood, no exemption. No covering, no life. It's only if you had the covering of the blood that you lived. So that was to teach Israel that there was nothing special concerning them except what the Lord had done. That's the only difference. And the, the killing of the firstborn is something, I think, that would have affected Israel in two ways. First of all, collectively, Israel was known as a nation, as God's firstborn. The very first time Moses 
appeared in front of Pharaoh, he was to give him the message that Israel was God's firstborn son. Now, I'll say something about this later. I don't mean later tonight, but, but later on. Uh, but that is important for you just to, to clock just now and keep in your mind that Israel as a whole, collectively as a nation, is God's firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn. Let my people go, said the Lord. So as a nation and as a people, she had the status of firstborn before God with all the rights and privileges. Again, within every family, every firstborn son had a status. That was actually true ever since the Garden of Eden. The first male child born had special responsibilities and privileges, including being the teacher-slash-priest in every given family. And it's interesting that even at chapter 13 here, when God is giving instructions regarding the Passover, he makes a special mention of the fact that he has a special claim even on Israel's firstborn. Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. It is mine. So God has always had a claim to the firstborn. And... um, one of the reasons God chose the tribe of Levi later, I'm conscious this is complicating matters, but just bear with me, but one of the reasons he chose the tribe of Levi later was as a substitute for all the firstborn males in every family of Israel, because they did belong to him. Now God sweeping through the land of Egypt that night and taking the firstborn is a judgment upon Egypt, effectively saying, as families you have not followed me, And you have not dedicated your firstborn to me, as every family is supposed to do, and therefore I take your firstborn from you. That's the way God deals with us. If we abuse his gifts, if we resist his callings, and if we defy him in rebellion, then he will always claim back what is rightfully his. And in connection with Israel's firstborn, well, God had a claim on them too. And God could have destroyed Israel as the entire firstborn. The only deliverance for them was God's own firstborn. Uh, In fact, you could say with legitimacy that there was a death in Egypt in every single house that night. There was a death. I know at one level we could say that death only visited the house of the Egyptians. But on another level, very profound Death did visit every home because in every Israeli home there was a lamb slain. That lamb typified God's firstborn. And it was because that firstborn of God was slain that the family of Israel was spared. And that's a graphic way of telling us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his firstborn, That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Firstborn died in every home. But praise God, it was God's firstborn that died instead of you and instead of me. Now God's mercy, therefore, is to undeserving sinners. And Israel were taught that. And they had to remember that. And it was pressed upon them before the Passover was given. But of course God's mercy comes to them in the form of the Passover. A simple meal, still kept by Jewish people. And in some ways it's still kept by Christians. Because the Lord, of course, on the night in which he was betrayed, took two of the elements on the Passover table And he converted them. And the Lord's Passover suddenly becomes the Lord's Supper. There is a deep connection between these two meals, which we'll see later on. So there's a sense in which this meal continues under the new covenant, in a slightly different form from the way it existed under the old covenant. But in its essence here, it's a very simple meal. 
We may wonder sometimes why God gives these rules and uh, why he chooses to do things in a certain way, but there's, there's a reason for everything. On the tenth day, he says, choose for yourselves a lamb. Now, the word used can cover either a kid or a lamb. The poorer families probably would take a kid. Uh, ordinary families would take a lamb. It had to be a male yearling. Uh, in other words, a male lamb, a ram, one year old. And that lamb was to be kept for the best part of four days. Not four days, but the best part of four days. On the 14th day, literally in the Hebrew, between the two evenings, that's between the first setting of the sun and absolute darkness, that lamb was to be killed, literally in the Hebrew, slaughtered. And two things were to be done to it. First, its blood was to be gathered in a basin. And then the head of the household would take a, a sprig of hyssop and dip it in the basin and he would dog the blood onto the lintel of the door and on the doorposts. And then the lamb itself was to be roasted entire. No bone was to be broken and it was to be eaten with the accompaniment of unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Nothing was to be left over. Anything that was, just the necessary fragments, were to be burnt on the following day. Total destruction. It was to be eaten with a staff in the hand, shoes on the feet, clothes belted up and ready to go. Eaten in haste, God says. As a people on the move, as a people making a journey, as a people getting out of here, a people escaping death and tyranny and judgment and embracing life and liberty and blessing. It is the Lord's Passover. Now this event becomes the most important event in the Jewish calendar. So much so that as you probably noticed in the reading, the calendar was actually changed to reflect that. God said, from now on, this month shall be the beginning of months to you. Now, if you read the Old Testament very carefully, it would seem that there were two calendars in operation. There was a civil calendar and a religious calendar. If that may sound strange, we've got a few calendars ourselves. We have a fiscal calendar that runs from April to April. We have an academic calendar. You can buy a diary that usually runs from August onwards. Well, they had a civil calendar and a religious one. And God is saying that your religious year begins with this event. And that's no surprise, because although every single sacrifice typified Christ and represented Christ somehow, I would suggest that this particular sacrifice represented or typified Christ more clearly than any of the others. I think the only two that you could say come close to it are Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, which was a spiritual sacrifice, and also the Day of the Atonement, when the high priest went into the most holy place once a year. But I don't think either of those two actually reach the fullness and the depth <coughs> that the Passover itself reaches as a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could infer anyway from all the biblical information that this Passover is all about Christ, but it's put beyond any doubt by the Apostle Paul himself, who says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 that Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He uses these words, actually, in connection with the Lord's Supper and the importance of people purging themselves and cleansing themselves before the Lord's Supper and make, making sure that they partake of the Lord's Supper 
with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These are the accompaniments that you bring to the new covenant meal. Not bitter herbs and unleavened bread, but sincerity and truth. Take these with you to the supper, because, he says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's our warrant, very simply, to see this Passover as a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. And over the next few weeks, I'd like to consider three things with you. First of all, preparing the lamb. Second, offering the lamb. And third, partaking of the lamb. And under these three headings, God willing, we can fit everything that I think we need to say, at least at this time, in connection with the Passover. Preparing the lamb, offering the lamb, and partaking of the lamb. Let's confine ourselves tonight with the to the preparation of the lamb. Choose a lamb. When uh, Moses tells the elders, because these things were actually done through the elders, the Passover was governed by the elders, just as the Lord's Supper is governed by the elders, or should be anyway, used to be, and where things are done properly still is. Choose a lamb, or as he said to the elders, lay hold of a lamb. Now, of course, that reminds us that Christ himself, as a lamb, is chosen. Chosen, of course, by the Father. The lamb ultimately is always God's choice. That comes before us in the book of Exodus. We saw it, I remember preaching on this with you, although I think it was before I came as your minister, when Abraham and Isaac were going up to Mount Moriah and Isaac was carrying the wood and the fire and he turned to his father and said, where is the lamb? And Abraham, of course, famously said that God will provide a lamb for himself. That is always true. God always provides the lamb. God is the one who gives the sacrifice and the cause of the mystery of the Trinity, the sacrifices himself. It makes it possible, the, tr- the Trinity makes it possible for God to be the giver of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. And God chose this Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the foundation of the world. The term Lamb is used for Jesus 28 times in the book of the Revelation. And on one of these occasions, he is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, it is very important to recognize that, that behind any other choice, we'll we'll come to any other choice in a second, but behind any other choice, there is this choice in eternity. There is this mysterious and wonderful preparation and provision made in the eternal covenant of grace or covenant of redemption where Christ is set apart to be the Lamb. And in that respect, he is slain from the foundation of the world, slain in the plan and purpose of God. It will happen, and it will happen to him, to his own Son. But this choosing of the Lamb on the tenth day, I would say with Humility, conscious that there are better people than me who disagree with me on this, or who look at it another way, let's say, I would say in all humility that this choice of the Lamb on the tenth day is not to do with God's choice of Christ in eternity. It's to do with the selection of Christ in time. The call that came to him in his lowly life in Nazareth, living as a lamb among other lambs of the flock, to come out apart from them, to be separated, and to be consecrated as the lamb that is to be slain in the sacrifice, or the lamb of God. As we sang in the psalm, it was God's will to exalt one from among the people. Psalm 89. God lays his hand upon a strong one. 
he lays his hand upon one among the people. So amongst all the people of God, God lays his hand upon one who is his chosen, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why at 30 years of age, the age when priests were called to service, the Lord is called too. And he's called at that age not just to be a sacrificial priest and a teaching prophet, but he is also called to be the sacrifice, to be the Lamb of God. And he is publicly announced by John the Baptist beside the Jordan at 30 years of age. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The first lamb sacrificed when Abel sacrificed a lamb in Genesis chapter 4 was a lamb for himself and probably for his family too. The Passover is a lamb for Israel. But behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is his selection. That is this lamb taken from the flock God's hand upon a strong one, whom he is now setting aside to be a sacrifice for the people. And in connection with that sacrifice, certain things need to be true. Certain things need to be true. And the first thing that needs to be true is that this sacrificial lamb must be a male now, of course, you could say that he, the lamb has to be a male because he represents Christ, who is a male. Now, that, of course, would be true. But it would be cheap and easy to say that without going back another step and saying, why does Christ himself have to be a male? Well, there's an important reason for that. The original covenant that God made with man was made with a male. It was made with Adam as the covenant head. And even when Eve fell into sin, she only fell herself. And I suppose it's entering the realm to some extent of speculation, but had Eve herself died before Adam sinning, it's more than likely that God would have provided another wife for Adam. Because not everything would have fallen then. Eve, living for herself, would also die just for herself. But of course, Adam did fall. And because of Adam's fall, the whole of human nature was corrupted. And from that point onwards, everyone born is born with a corrupt human nature under the wrath and judgment of God. But if the Saviour is going to be born into this world... And if he's going to fulfill the covenant of works, if he comes in to undo the damage that Adam did and to rescue and liberate a people, he must come under the covenant on the same terms and conditions. He must come, as Paul says, as the second man and as the last Adam. And that is why, primarily why, he is born a man. He's here on a mission as a covenant head to represent an innumerable company of people. And they will stand and fall as he stands and falls. Second, the one that God lays his hand upon mustn't just be a male, but must be a yearling, a male of one year. Now, of course, we need to be careful in connection with the significance of that. Obviously, this does not mean that the second man or the last Adam is to be a year old. What it means is that he must be mature because that is what a, a one-year-old lamb was. It had reached maturity and the prime of its strength. And at the time God lays his hand upon Christ, he is a mature man and he is a tested man. And at 30 years of age, when 
Christ chose to become the sin bearer when he yielded himself to be the Lamb of God. He could have been anything else. There is no one in the world, there never was, never will be, who was as talented as he was in terms of his ability to work, his ability to think, his ability to speak. He could have attained any stature, any door that was open, he could have walked through them, but he chose to be what his father wanted him to be and made himself of no reputation, although he could have had any reputation that he wished. He chose the life of humble obedience that God ordained for him. So a male in full maturity of life. I've got more to say about that maturity and its importance just a little bit later on. The third thing that had to be true in connection with this lamb is that it had to be without blemish. In verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Now it's always vital in any sacrifice was always vital that the animal given uh, be an animal in a pure condition. Leviticus is a book that is all about sacrifices. And God says this, Tell the children of Israel that whoever offers his sacrifice must offer it of his own free will. That's important too. That's for another time. It must be without blemish. Anything that has a defect you must not offer. It shall not be accepted on your behalf. Anything that is blind, broken, maimed, an ulcer, eczema or scabs, you must not offer to the Lord. Neither a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, it shall not be accepted. You must not offer to the Lord what is bruised, crushed, torn or cut. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. The animal had to be absolutely without blemish. Don't know if you remember, but in Malachi's prophecy, that's the last book in the Old Testament, uh, when the people of God were again beginning to degenerate from a great height of revival and blessing, one of the things that characterized their degeneration was their worship, which of course is so true today. Worship is degenerating. But one of the aspects that was degenerating was when, when they would bring an animal for sacrifice, they would bring the, the blind or an animal that maybe only had three legs or something like that, something that was deficient because they, they, the rest, they wanted to make money out of their animals. So they gave God what was not quite so good. And of course Malachi says to them, offer that to your governor and see what he thinks of it. I suppose there's, there's a lot of worship of which we could say that. Offer that even to your king or to your queen and see what they think of that. What we give to God should always reflect our best. Our behaviour, our appearance, our speech, our thoughts, everything about us in the house of God should reflect our best. We, we give God our best. We don't give him what's second best or what's nearly good enough, but we give him our best. And, and it's interesting in the letter to the Romans when Paul is telling us to dedicate ourselves to God as a sacrifice, a living, walking sacrifice. He says, let your life be a sacrifice to God. He tells us to make sure that that sacrifice is holy and therefore acceptable to God. I beseech you, brethren, he says, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable which is your reasonable service. Liturgia is the Greek word. Worship. It is your rational worship. In the light of what God has done for you, you present yourselves holy to God. Now, of course, your best holiness and my best holiness will not be without spot. It will not be without blemish. But it must still be real. 
a real holy offering of our lives and especially of our worship, which is the crown of our life. But our Lord's sacrifice had to be absolutely without spot and without blemish and the perfection of the animal was a reflection of that. Absolutely without blemish. Now again, the reason for the animal being without blemish was not to typify simply what Christ was, but telling us what he had to be. What he had to be. For God to to lay his hand upon him as a fit sacrifice and substitute, he had to be this at 30 years of age, at the point of selection, without sin. And the Lord's 30 years were a preparation for that. The 30 years of Nazareth uh, are often thought by us, rightly so, as years that are passed over in silence. But they're not insignificant. They're years of preparation. I mean, these 30 years are 30 years. With reverence, this man only lived 33 and a half years. The 30 years are something. The 30 years are all building up to that. We know from Scripture that he lived in a house with four brothers who didn't even believe in him. And it's worth thinking of this, that if they did not believe in him, who then did they think he was? Obviously born illegitimate, just what everybody else said he was. He had at least two sisters. Neither of them believed in him either. (coughs) So even in his own home, there was rejection. We know from the state of Nazareth, having looked at it in recent weeks in connection with Christ's preaching in Nazareth, what a hard and barren place it was. It doesn't seem to be the case that there was any place in Galilee that was as hard as Nazareth. That's where he was asked to live. That's where God placed him. That's where God trained him. That's where God examined him and God tested him. And at 30 years, when God lays his hand upon this strong one, it is someone who is proved and tested and tried. At 30 years of age, he is a lamb of God without spot and without blemish. At 30 years of age, he is holy, harmless and undefiled, already separate from sinners. That's how God has to find it. Because He can't undo the curse unless he is like that. He can't reopen paradise unless he is all that. How, what's the point of dying on a cross if he's a sinner himself? What's the point? None. So that's how God's call to duty finds him. At 30 years of age, a male in his prime, and without blemish. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there is briefly a second stage to his preparation because this Lamb, you'll notice, is selected on the tenth day and kept until the fourteenth. Why? That's three and a half days. What do these three and a half days represent? If anything, I I referred earlier on to people who believe that the only selection of this lamb is the selection in eternity. Now, like I said, there is a selection in eternity, but I don't believe it's the one spoken of here. But those who believe that it is the selection in eternity say this. They say that days 10 to 14 represent the time from eternity until the crucifixion itself, the roasting of the Passover lamb. But does that really make sense? Why should days 10 to 14 represent that? Eternity to Calvary. No, friends, I would suggest to you that the answer lies elsewhere. It lies in a simple key that you find inside the Bible itself. Very often in biblical prophecies, you find that a day represents a year. 
A day represents a year. The best known example of that is Daniel's prophecy. Uh, It's at the end of chapter 9 and it's usually called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And these 70 weeks are divided into um, uh, three periods of weeks. I always get numbers wrong so I'm going to leave the exact details of that. But they're divided into three periods of weeks. And in their entirety, the 70 weeks represent 70 weeks of years. 70 times 7, 490 years. And Daniel makes plain there in his prophecy that in 490 years' time, from the decree to liberate the captives, the Messiah would come. That, by the way, is why you have wise men in Babylon who recognize the birth of Christ when Israel don't. It's always strange when you have people you would never expect far more skilled in their Bible than the people who should be. Days representing years. Now that helps us to understand the tenth day here to the fourteenth. Why is the Lamb kept for three and a half days? It's because Christ will be examined for three and a half years. It's the time between the selection of the Lamb, his public identification, in other words, and the time of his offering in Calvary. Three and a half years will pass. Why? Why? Well, that's a time for further preparation and examination. Because of the consequences, you couldn't be too careful in connection with this animal. God rejected the slightest defect. The slightest defect. Purity is vital. And so for three and a half years, let this lamb be brought out before the people. Let him be examined by God for his purity. Let him be examined by people. Let him be examined by the devil. Let him be examined by angels. Let him be examined by everybody. Is he still... After the testings and the trials and tribulation, is he still a Lamb of God without spot and without blemish? Well, there was no shortage of efforts to get him to fall. Satan expended so much energy during the ministry of Christ to get him just to think one thought that's out of place. There were plenty thoughts that the devil sent into, into Christ's head. Even at its most basic level, take these stones and make them bread. That was a sinful thought. Christ never entertained it once. Cast yourself down from the temple. See if God cares about you. You think God loves you? Prove God loves you. Put his love to the test. Does, does the Bible not say that he'll give his angels charge over you to keep you? So just cast yourself down. Prove that God loves you. A sinful thought. Never once did Christ make it his own. It was the devil's suggestion floating in his head, not his own. There are times, Christians, when we can have the devil's suggestions floating in our heads too, but we we don't make them our own. As Luther once graphically and famously said, you can't stop a bird flying over your head, but you can prevent it making a nest in your ear. And there are many, many evil things that uh, come to you and they sometimes bother you. Um... And really, well, I'm not saying you shouldn't be bothered by them, but I I do want you to make a distinction between what just flies in there and what you make your own. Many of the time Satan can fly things in, and Satan did. And every effort was made to the point where our Lord's soul was harassed by the dogs that surrounded him and the powers of evil that were around him on Calvary. And at every point, it's just to get him to sin. Just a blemish, just a defect that would mean that he couldn't keep the covenant of works. He he couldn't extricate us from under the curse and the whole thing just falls to the ground. And as the Passover dawns in Jerusalem, I don't mean this Passover, I, I mean to fast forward. To fast forward 1,500 years to the final Passover which Christ was to keep with his people You'll notice if you read the Gospels carefully that there is a meticulous record given of Christ's innocence 
and sinlessness being declared both by friends and foes. And once you notice it, you can't miss it anymore. Just when he's coming to the end of his sojourn, he declares it himself. Which of you, he says, can convict me of sin? Imagine if someone was to say that to you. Suppose I was to say that tonight. There are plenty of people here who can say that. That's not difficult to do. But he could turn around after three and a half years of thorough examination as God's lamb and say, is there a spot, a defect, a blemish? What about the disciples? Well, Peter, looking back on this three and a half years, describes him as without blemish and without spot. What about the Romans themselves? It's interesting that the Roman centurion, who had superintendence of the cross, said, this was a righteous man. Certainly this was the Son of God. Pilate, who had a commission to try him, said, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's wife was harassed by a dream that night, and she sent the message to Pilate, and she said, take nothing to do with this man. In other words, take nothing to do with condemning him, because he is a righteous man, she said. The thief on the cross This man has done nothing amiss. The one who betrayed him, Judas Iscariot, I have betrayed innocent blood. The Holy Spirit sees to it that out of the mouth of friends and foes, when the three and a half years in ward, in separation, under examination are completed, he is still what he was at 30. A Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. Prepared by trial for 30 years, examined, therefore selected. For three and a half years, kept in ward, further trial and further examination. And therefore, he is ready to be offered. Of course, he famously yields himself to that in Gethsemane. To be the sacrificial victim, the Lamb of God, and he's taken to the slaughter. Next time we'll consider this prepared lamb being an offered lamb. Let us pray. O Lord, grant us the grace to recognize the identity of your lamb, chosen indeed in a covenant from the foundation of the world, but selected for us in time and offered to for sinners. O Lord, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation and if we despise so great a Saviour? You gave your firstborn and you could give no more than that. And you did not spare your own son but delivered him up for us all, that the angel of death might pass over our door. We ask, Lord, that you would have mercy upon our poor and needy souls. In the Redeemer's name and for his sake. Amen. Our last um, singing is in Psalm 40. And at verse 6, and these of course are the Saviour's words as he considers, um, he considers the fact that he has to give himself, he is the offering, no sacrifice or offering didst thou at all desire and by that he means it's not the blood of bulls or of goats that you desire but my ears shall hold sin offering thou unburnt didst not require and is he willing to do that well then to the Lord these were my words I come behold and see 
within the volume of the book it written is of me. To do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God that art, yea, that most holy law of thine I have within my heart. Within the congregation great I righteousness did preach. Lo, thou dost know, O Lord, that I refrained not my speech. In these verses you have both the prophet and the priest. You have the prophet teaching and you have the priest offering. But, as I said, he offers himself. He is both the priest and the victim. Verses 6 to 9, we stand to sing.